old and rare book collections bring to mind the personal libraries of the landed gentry in England. You know, floor-to-ceiling shelves, dark leather-bound books, gold engraved covers, maybe a little bit dusty, maybe slightly musty. Over time, these books have been passed on to public libraries and collections for more people to enjoy, but preservation and access remain a bit of an obstacle. What is the future of these books and book collections if they cannot be poured over, shared, handled, enjoyed? It's a question raised and potentially answered by the digitisation of old and rare books. Expert in the history of books and Shakespeare from Oxford University is Emma Smith. She's in Melbourne for the launch of the State Library Victoria's new online exhibition, Beyond the Book, a digitisation of its rare book collection. Emma, welcome to you. Thanks. Where does your mind go when you're holding one of these old rare books? I'm assuming you're wearing some white gloves. Where, where does your mind go? Oh, no, first off, no white gloves. Uh, if you're not Mickey Mouse, you don't need to wear white gloves. So we only now wear white gloves handling photographs or other material like that. So the, the oils in your fingers are absolutely fine with this linen paper. Books were meant to be handled. And I think one important thing to say about them is, for the most part, books you know books were meant to be used. They were meant to have the pages turned. They're they're probably not going to fall apart uh, in, in, in your hands. So, uh, yeah, the, not, not, wearing, not wearing gloves. But for me, I think what I'm thinking about is what, what is the life this book has had um, between the date that's on it for its publication and uh, me holding it now in the 21st century? Where's it been? Who's enjoyed it? What kind of, yeah, what, what's its, uh, what, what adventures has it had? What, what is the oldest book you've had the opportunity to pour over yourself? Well, I've been really fortunate to look at books from the very earliest days of of printing in Europe, so uh, the Gutenberg Bible from the mid-15th century, uh, and I've looked at but not touched uh, books that come from the from the scribal period, you know, the handwritten uh, illuminated books from from before that. Some fantastic uh, Bibles and other other religious books, uh, but those are books I haven't, I haven't touched with gloves or not gloves. In your book, Portable Magic, you've said that the history of the book aligns with the history of Christianity. Tell me more about this. Why Christianity more than other religions? It's a great question. Um, the word Bible and a lot of words that are around books like, you know, bibliography or in French bibliothèque, these all come from the same the same root, you know, books and Bibles. Bibles were books uh, at the start. And it's Christianity that seems to be the early adopter of what is a new technology around uh, the, 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 the turn into the Christian era, and that's the technology sometimes called the codex, but really recognisable to us as a book. Before that, we get uh, scrolls, uh, long, continuous uh, pieces of papyrus or papyrus stitched together uh, that gives us a long kind of sequence. And it's the, the, the Christian religion seems particularly interested in books, I think, because it's a comparative uh, religion. If you go to a Christian church, you will see that there's a bit from the Old Testament and a bit from the New Testament. And that's a kind of reading which is not sequential. It needs you to have your finger or your bookmark in one bit of the book and flick back to another bit in order to compare. And it may be that that gives uh, a real boost to the new technology of the of the book and makes it particularly uh, suitable for the Christian scriptures, and then uh, it becomes adopted for other kinds of writing as well. 
And as a professor of Shakespeare, uh, you're often asked what it is you love about Shakespeare. You're often uh, quoted a lot of Shakespeare too. Is, is there anything that irritates you about Shakespeare? Oh, how long have we got? Um, I think there are lots of ways that Shakespeare uh, is a man of the Elizabethan period, uh, and that's a world very far from ours and the kind of things we think are important or, uh, uh, you know, should be, should be said now. So there are attitudes in Shakespeare which, which irritate me sometimes. And there's also, particularly coming from the UK, sometimes a bit of saturation um, people who lived in the age of Shakespeare didn't know it was the age of Shakespeare. They had lots of other writers and things that they were interested in, but it's all been a bit overburdened for us with, with Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. So sometimes I have some sympathy with the theatre directors who say, we should have a moratorium. Let's get some <laughs> new voices in. Let's, let's have a rest from Shakespeare. Because, of course, the other argument is that Shakespeare's work comes across almost as a living, breathing organism. There's a sense that it's always uh, evolving with all those new performances and interpretations. Is there any chance that there is joy in this constant exploration for you? Yeah, absolutely there is. People make the Shakespeare that they want. That's that's the reason Shakespeare has lasted, has been the way the works are amenable to uh, to being reinterpreted. They've got these gaps in them which we fill with our own worlds and our own hopes and our own uh, images of the world. So completely, I think, adaptation, translation, global Shakespeare's, these are all enormously enlivening uh, elements. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not grumpy about, about these things, but, but I do sometimes uh, feel maybe we're putting a lot of weight on one author. Uh, and sometimes some of the themes we try to make Shakespeare explore for us in the modern world, we could actually look to more contemporary writers. So around the 1500s in Europe, you had the printing press, you had Shakespeare. Where exactly were the great global publishing houses and factories springing up? Were they concentrated in one place in Europe or were they uh, more or less uh, spread across the continent? Printing is an industry which... um, it's almost as if everybody was just sort of waiting for it to come to Europe because almost as soon as Gutenberg uh, has uh, his uh, printing press in Mainz in Germany, you know, within about 20 years, there are printing presses in scores and scores of towns across uh, Europe. Uh, so printing is pretty widely dispersed really quite early in its uh, in, in the time that it's come uh, it's come to Europe um, but of course London uh, becomes uh, an important center uh, for print really uh, in the later 1500s and I know we're crossing a lot of territory here but the the accompanying of books accompanies a lot of important dates across history and some really infamous ones too we, we know that the passengers on the Titanic, had books with them. What kinds of books went down with that ship? It's an amazing thought, actually, all the other things that were on those uh, uh, ships crossing the Atlantic, most most particularly and poignantly, the Titanic. I became really interested um, uh, in a in a young um, collector, young wealthy, gilded age sort of American heir uh, called um, uh, uh, Harry Widener. He gave his books, uh, ultimately went to Harvard University, but he's uh, come over uh, for a, really a book buying 
expedition to London comes from New York, uh, and it's really very ominous when you see that the uh, the, the great voyage back that he and his family have uh, have booked is is on the Titanic. So some of his books that he'd bought in London on that fateful trip go back by by another uh, ship, and they actually uh, reach New York, which he uh, and his father never does. Uh, his mother uh, does. Women's upper class women had a quite high survival rate on on the Titanic, but no other group uh, did. You know, women and children first mm. in the in the lifeboats. With their books, you can really, yes. Yeah, you can really see that. Um, but yeah, Widener's copy of um, uh, a book of Francis Bacon's essays, for one, for one thing, was was certainly in his in his luggage and and went down uh, with the Titanic. Um, and there are lots of other examples in that period when American collectors, uh, really wealthy men mostly, who had made a lot of money in the new industries in America at the end of the nineteenth and into the twentieth century, uh, they they were bringing over you know huge collections of rare books uh, and and quite a number of those uh, did perish uh, on the journey. Mm, how fascinating. If you've just joined me on RN Drive, Emma Smith is here. We're discussing, we're about to uh, discuss the State Library of Victoria's new digital exhibition beyond the book here on RN Drive. Before I do though, this might sound like a stupid question, but is a rare book necessarily an old book? It's a really, it's not a whole stupid question. It's a really, really good question. Some old books are, are not actually all that rare. Uh, and yeah, some rare books are, are, are not that old. So in our own day, we have got special uh, bespoke books, artists' books, limited uh, edition books, limited number books. Um, and some of the rarest books of all are uh, the books that probably were cheapest uh, when they first emerged, and they're the kind of fragile books that haven't uh, that haven't survived. And when it comes to the digitization of books, I mean, is this uh, well? This has often been written about as the next step in the democratization of the knowledge contained within books. How do you think about that idea? I think that uh, that's certainly true. That the contents of books. Um, are more accessible to us uh, in all kinds of ways uh, because of uh, the digital medium than, they, than they've ever been before. It's been an interesting response, for example, by some libraries uh, in countries where there is uh, increasing book censorship to make digital copies of uh, controversial or censored books widely available uh, online. So definitely it, it, it's part of the democratisation. I think what the State Library of Victoria project is thinking about is not just the content of books, but whether you can democratise these rare books as objects, whether you can maximise people's experience of what it might be like to handle them and to, to, to look at them and to look at aspects of them which are not just the words that are contained within them. And, and if a book, as we started talking about, is tactile, is to be handled, is to be almost a, a, a palette for your, your DNA to remain on, what is the future of the book if we can't handle them, we can't touch them, even the, the mass-produced ones, if they're in a digital format? How do you think about the future of the book? I think we've been worried for a long time that uh, the physical book is is in decline. Uh, and certainly in the UK, the context I know best, that's actually not not really true. Uh, numbers of, of e-books uh, have 
leveled out. They had a big spike in the pandemic, understandably. Uh, but people still have a real interest in, in new books, but also uh, baby boomers and um, uh, millennials are buying up the kind of editions of books they had as, as children. Uh, people are interested in those specific forms. So I, maybe I'm too optimistic about it, but I, I don't see the book going, going anywhere uh, just, just yet. And to the contrary, I see... Uh, lots of publishers making a real investment in the book as object um, to, to counter the, the digital so that if you're reading a book now, uh, a new book, it's almost certainly better produced, better quality, uh, has you know more, more decoration, is a nicer object uh, than it was, say, 20 or 25 years ago. Because there is this great irony, really, around the idea that these once priceless and coveted volumes that collectors used to search for and hunt down are now easily available to everyone. Yeah, is that an irony? I think that's. I mean, I, th I think that's a wonderful uh, development, and I think uh, it's important that we embrace that the access uh, that digitization of content and of form uh, can can offer. But the the Emerson collection that the State Library of Victoria have digitized does also exist in in physical form and is is available to researchers uh, to look at uh, in person. Well, Professor Emma Smith, it's wonderful to talk to you. Uh, she's from Oxford University and she's in Melbourne for the State Library of Victoria's new digital exhibition, Beyond the Book. I'll put a link up online if you want to head down there. Thank you so much for your time. Real pleasure. Thanks ever so much. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.